0: THE STORY CONCLUDED BY WALTER HARTWRIGHT CHAPTER ONE When I closed the last leaf of the Count's manuscript, the half-hour during which I had engaged to remain at Forest Road had expired. Monsieur Rubel looked at his watch and bowed. I rose immediately and left the agent in possession of the empty house. I never saw him again. I never heard more of him or his wife. Out of the dark byways of villainy and deceit they had crawled across our path. Into the same byways they crawled back secretly and were lost. In a quarter of an hour after leaving Forest Road, I was at home again. But few words sufficed to tell Laura and Marianne how my desperate venture had ended and what the next event in our lives was likely to be. I left all details to be described later in the day, and hastened back to St. John's Wood to see the person of whom Count Fosco had ordered the fly when he went to meet Laura at the station. The address in my possession led me to some livery stables about a quarter of a mile distant from Forest Road. The proprietor proved to be a civil and respectable man. When I explained that an important family matter obliged me to ask him to refer to his books— for the purpose of ascertaining a date with which the record of his business transactions might supply me, he offered no objection to granting my request. The book was produced, and there, under the date of July twenty-sixth, 1850, the order was entered in these words, COUNT FOSCO, FIVE FOREST ROAD, TWO O'CLOCK, JOHN OWEN "'I found on inquiry that the name of John Owen, attached to the entry, "'referred to the man who had been employed to drive the fly. "'He was then at work in the stable-yard, "'and was sent for to see me at my request. "'Do you remember driving a gentleman in the month of July last, "'from No. 5 Forest Road to the Waterloo Bridge Station?' I asked. "'Well, sir,' said the man, "'I can't exactly say I do. "'Perhaps you remember the gentleman himself,' "'Can you call to mind driving a foreigner last summer, "'a tall gentleman and remarkably fat?' "'The man's face brightened directly. "'I remember him, sir, "'the fattest gentleman as ever I see, "'and the heaviest customer as ever I drove. "'Yes, yes, I call him to mind, sir. "'We did go to the station, "'and it was from Forest Road. There is a parrot or something like that "'screeching in the window. "'The gentleman was in a mortal hurry "'about the lady's luggage,' and he gave me a handsome present for looking sharp and getting the boxes. Getting the boxes? I recollected immediately that Laura's own account of herself on her arrival in London described her luggage as being collected for her by some person whom Count Fosco brought with him to the station. This was the man. "'Did you see the lady?' I asked. "'What should she look like? Was she young or old?' "'Well, sir,' What with the hurry and the crowd of people pushing about, I can't rightly say what the lady looked like. I can't call nothing to mind about her that I know of excepting her name. You remember her name? Yes, sir. Her name was Lady Glyde. How do you come to remember that when you have forgotten what she looked like? The man smiled and shifted his feet in some little embarrassment. Why, to tell you the truth, sir, he said. "'I hadn't been long married at that time, "'and my wife's name, before she changed it for mine, "'was the same as the lady's, meaning the name of Glyde, sir.' "'The lady mentioned it herself. "'Is your name on your boxes, ma'am?' says I. "'Yes,' says she. "'My name is on my luggage. "'It is Lady Glyde. "'Come,' I says to myself. "'I've a bad head for gentlefolk's names in general, "'but this one comes like an old friend at any rate.' "'I can't say nothing about the time, sir. "'It might be nigh on a year ago, or it mightn't. "'But I can swear to the stout gentleman "'and swear to the lady's name.' "'There was no need that he should remember the time. "'The date was positively established by his master's order-book. "'I felt at once that the means were now in my power "'of striking down the whole conspiracy at a blow "'with the irresistible weapon of plain fact.' Without a moment's hesitation, I took the proprietor of the livery stables aside and told him what the real importance was of the evidence of his order-book and the evidence of his driver. An arrangement to compensate him for the temporary loss of the man's services was easily made, and a copy of the entry in the book was taken by myself and certified as true by the master's own signature. I left the livery stables having settled that John Owen was to hold himself at my disposal for the next three days, or for a longer period if necessity required it. I now had in my possession all the papers that I wanted, the district registrar's own copy of the certificate of death, and Sir Percival's dated letter to the Count being safe in my pocketbook. With this written evidence about me, and with the coachman's answers fresh in my memory, I next turned my steps for the first time since the beginning of all my inquiries, in the direction of Mr. Kyrill's office. One of my objects in paying him the second visit was, necessarily, to tell him what I had done. The other was to warn him of my resolution to take my wife to Limeridge the next morning, and to have her publicly received and recognized in her uncle's house. I left it to Mr. Kyrill to decide under these circumstances, and in Mr. Gilmore's absence whether he was or was not bound, as the family solicitor, to be present on that occasion in the family's interests. I will say nothing of Mr. Kyrill's amazement or of the terms in which he expressed his opinion of my conduct from the first stage of the investigation to the last. It is only necessary to mention that he at once decided on accompanying us to Cumberland. We started the next morning by the early train. Laura... Marianne, Mr. Cairo, and myself in one carriage, and John Owen with a clerk from Mr. Cyril's office, occupying places in another. On reaching the Limeridge station, we went first to the farmhouse at Todd's Corner. It was my firm determination that Laura should not enter her uncle's house till she appeared there publicly recognized as his niece." I left Marianne to settle the question of accommodation with Mrs. Todd as soon as the good woman had recovered from the bewilderment of hearing what our errand was in Cumberland, and I arranged with her husband that John Owen was to be committed to the ready hospitality of the farm servants. These preliminaries completed, Mr. Cairo and I set forth together for Limeridge House. I cannot write at any length of our interview with Mr. Fairley for I cannot recall it to mind without feelings of impatience and contempt, which make the scene, even in remembrance only, utterly repulsive to me. I prefer to record simply that I carried my point. Mr. Fairley attempted to treat us on his customary plan. We passed without notice his polite insolence at the outset of the interview. We heard without sympathy the protestations with which he tried next to persuade us— that the disclosure of the conspiracy had overwhelmed him. He absolutely whined and whimpered at last, like a fretful child. How was he to know that his niece was alive when he was told that she was dead? He would welcome dear Laura with pleasure, if we would only allow him time to recover. Did we think he looked as if he wanted hurrying into his grave? No, then. Why hurry him? He reiterated these remonstrances at every available opportunity until I checked them once for all by placing him firmly between two inevitable alternatives. I gave him his choice between doing his niece justice on my terms or facing the consequence of a public assertion of her existence in a court of law. Mr. Cyril, to whom he turned for help, told him plainly that he must decide the question then and there characteristically choosing the alternative which promised soonest to release him from all personal anxiety, he announced with a sudden outburst of energy that he was not strong enough to bear any more bullying and that we might do as we pleased. Mr. Cyril and I at once went downstairs and agreed upon a form of letter which was to be sent round to the tenants who had attended the false funeral, summoning them in Mr. Fairley's name, "'to assemble in Limeridge House on the next day but one. "'An order referring to the same date was also written, "'directing a statuary in Carlisle "'to send a man to Limeridge Churchyard "'for the purpose of erasing an inscription. "'Mr. Cairo, who had arranged to sleep in the house, "'undertaking that Mr. Fairley should hear these letters read to him "'and should sign them with his own hand.' "'I occupied the interval day at the farm "'in writing a plain narrative of the conspiracy "'and in adding to it a statement of the practical contradiction "'which facts offered to the assertion of Laura's death. "'This I submitted to Mr. Cairo "'before I read it the next day to the assembled tenants. "'We also arranged the form in which the evidence "'should be presented at the close of the reading. "'After these matters were settled,' Mr. Kyrill endeavored to turn the conversation next to Laura's affairs. Knowing and desiring to know nothing of those affairs, and doubting whether he would approve, as a man of business, of my conduct in relation to my wife's life interest in the legacy left to Madame Fosco, I begged Mr. Kyrill to excuse me if I abstained from discussing the subject. It was connected, as I could truly tell him, with those sorrows and troubles of the past which we never referred to among ourselves and which we instinctively shrank from discussing with others. My last labor, as the evening approached, was to obtain the narrative of the tombstone by taking a copy of the false inscription on the grave before it was erased. The day came. The day when Laura once more entered the familiar breakfast room at Limeridge House... All the persons assembled rose from their seats as Marianne and I led her in. A perceptible shock of surprise, an audible murmur of interest ran through them at the sight of her face. Mr. Fairley was present, by my express stipulation, with Mr. Cyril by his side. His valet stood behind him with a smelling-bottle ready in one hand and a white handkerchief saturated with eau de cologne in the other. I opened the proceedings by publicly appealing to Mr. Fairley to say whether I appeared there with his authority and under his express sanction. He extended an arm on either side to Mr. Cyril and to his valet, was by them assisted to stand on his legs, and then expressed himself in these terms. Allow me to present Mr. Hartwright. I am as great an invalid as ever, and he is so very obliging as to speak for me. The subject is dreadfully embarrassing.' Please hear him, and don't make a noise. With those words, he slowly sank back again into his chair and took refuge in his scented pocket-handkerchief. The disclosure of the conspiracy followed after I had offered my preliminary explanation, first of all, in the fewest and the plainest words. I was there present, I informed my hearers, to declare, first, that my wife, then sitting by me, was the daughter of the late... Mr. Philip Fairley. Secondly, to prove by positive facts that the funeral which they had attended in Limeridge Churchyard was the funeral of another woman. Thirdly, to give them a plain account of how it had all happened. Without further preface, I at once read the narrative of the conspiracy, describing it in clear outline, and dwelling only upon the pecuniary motive for it. This done, I reminded my audience of the date of the inscription in the churchyard, the 25th, and confirmed its correctness by producing the certificate of death. I then read them Sir Percival's letter of the 25th, announcing his wife's attended journey from Hampshire to London on the 26th. I next showed that she had taken that journey by the personal testimony of the driver of the fly, and I proved that she had performed it on the appointed day by the order book at the livery stables. Marianne then added her own statement of the meeting between Laura and herself at the madhouse and of her sister's escape. After which I closed the proceedings by informing the persons present of Sir Percival's death and of my marriage. Mr. Kyriel Rose when I resumed my seat and declared as the legal adviser of the family "'that my case was proved by the plainest evidence he had ever heard in his life. "'As he spoke those words, I put my arm round Laura "'and raised her so that she was plainly visible to everyone in the room. "'Are you all of the same opinion?' I asked, "'advancing towards them a few steps and pointing to my wife. "'The effect of the question was electrical.' Far down at the lower end of the room, one of the oldest tenants on the estate started to his feet and led the rest with him in an instant. I see the man now, with his honest brown face and his iron gray hair, mounted on the window seat, waving his heavy riding whip over his head, and leading the cheers. There she is, alive and hearty, God bless her! The shout that answered him, reiterated again and again, was the sweetest music I ever heard. "'The laborers in the village "'and the boys from the school "'assembled on the lawn "'caught up the cheering "'and echoed it back on us. "'The farmer's wives "'clustered round Laura "'and struggled "'which should be first "'to shake hands with her "'and to implore her "'with the tears "'pouring over their own cheeks "'to bear up bravely "'and not to cry. "'She was so completely overwhelmed "'that I was obliged "'to take her from them "'and carry her to the door. "'Then I gave her "'into Marianne's care. "'Marianne, who had never failed us yet, whose courageous self-control did not fail us now. Left by myself at the door, I invited all the persons present, after thanking them in Laura's name and mine, to follow me to the churchyard and see the false inscription struck off the tombstone with their own eyes. They all left the house and all joined the throng of villagers collected round the grave where the statuary's man was waiting for us. In a breathless silence, the first sharp stroke of the steel sounded on the marble. Not a voice was heard, not a soul moved, till those three words, Laura, Lady Glyde, had vanished from sight. Then there was a great heave of relief among the crowd, as if they felt that the last fetters of the conspiracy had been struck off Laura herself, and the assembly slowly withdrew. It was late in the day before the whole inscription was erased. One line only was afterwards engraved in its place. Anne Catherick, July twenty fifth, 1850. I returned to Limeridge House early enough in the evening to take leave of Mr. Cairo. He and his clerk, and the driver of the fly, went back to London by the night train. On their departure, an insolent message was delivered to me from Mr. Fairley, "'who had been carried from the room in a shattered condition "'when the first outbreak of cheering "'answered my appeal to the tenantry. "'The message conveyed to us Mr. Fairley's best congratulations "'and requested to know whether we contemplated stopping in the house. "'I sent back word that the only object "'for which we had entered his doors was accomplished, "'that I contemplated stopping in no man's house but my own.' And that Mr. Fairley need not entertain the slightest apprehension of ever seeing us or hearing from us again. We went back to our friends at the farm to rest that night, and the next morning, escorted to the station with the heartiest enthusiasm and good will by the whole village and by all the farmers in the neighborhood, we returned to London. As our view of the Cumberland Hills faded in the distance, I thought of the first disheartening circumstances. "'under which the long struggle that was now past and over had been pursued. "'It was strange to look back and to see now "'that the poverty which had denied us all hope of assistance "'had been the indirect means of our success "'by forcing me to act for myself. "'If we had been rich enough to find legal help, "'what would have been the result? "'The gain on Mr. Kyrill's own showing would have been more than doubtful.' The law, judging by the plain test of events, as they had really happened, certain. The law would never have obtained me my interview with Mrs. Catherick. The law would never have made Pesca the means of forcing a confession from the Count. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.